In Canada, there's less than 15% of the advisors are women, yet women are two and a half times more comfortable talking to other women about investment risk and finances. Uh, women are going to be controlling a lot more in assets over the next you know, few years. Uh, women outlive their male partners a lot of the time. And, you know, when that happens, over 80% of them switch advisors within the first year. And it's just really an underserved market. This podcast is brought to you by Dentons. We are the largest law firm in the world with offices in more than 200 locations across 80 countries available to support you everywhere you do business. We're a law firm that embraces change and can help you grow, protect, operate, and finance your organization, which is why Dentons is organized to offer more than just legal insight. We're here to help you find business solutions in a seamless fashion across the globe. Hi, everyone. My name is Heather Barnhouse, partner and lawyer in our Edmonton office. Welcome to my podcast where I explore the topic of women in entrepreneurship and leadership and the ecosystem supporting the growth of this segment. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Crystal Kelly, an insurance advisor with Imani Financial. Welcome, Crystal. Thank you, Heather. I'm so happy to be here. I appreciate you inviting me to join you. Well, we're looking forward to the conversation. To get started, can you give our listeners a little bit of background about yourself as well as about Imani Financial? Sure, I'd love to. Uh, So I have spent the last 16 years in the financial industry. I spent the first 14 years of that in kind of a pretty niche area of the financial industry, the private capital markets. Oh, yeah. And I did something that I like to, although not as cool, compared to being on Dragon's Den. So I worked with private companies that were looking to raise capital through private investors for different asset acquisitions or different projects. And so what I would do is I would travel across the country and essentially pitch their business to institutional investors as well as investment dealers to establish, you know, ongoing capital raising uh, partnerships. And so you know, we would hopefully get to the due diligence phase, go through due diligence. Once we were approved and they wanted to work with us, I would then educate and train the wealth advisors who were licensed to offer these investment products on our business. And then of course, investors as well. So I, you know, educated investors and potential investors on the business and of course created Uh, private offerings and opportunities for them to invest in. So it's a great way to diversify your portfolio. A traditional portfolio oftentimes can be majority public, so public investment. So this is a way to diversify your portfolio into private offerings as well. So So just like you say, fun fun like Dragon's Den, but without the maybe the the breadth of the audience that we see on Dragon's Den. But yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. But, you know, but very similar, you know, the, the the only words I wanted to hear after these pitches was due diligence. Let's move to due diligence. <laughs> um, so similar in that sense. And you're, you know, they're asking a lot of the same questions at the beginning to figure out if they even want to do due diligence. So sure. comparable in that sense. Cool. So you, you so you did that. And yeah. then and, and and then what happened a couple of years ago? Yeah, so I decided to make a change. Um, 
you know, I would say due diligence, due diligence became not fun. Is that what you're saying? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I still have a passion for the private capital space. So um, not necessarily, but I think so. I would say there were sort of two main reasons why I wanted to make a transition. One was more personal. Uh, So I went through, um, you know, the process of healing some of my own personal trauma. I was in therapy. And through that process, I started to really figure out, I guess, who I am, what my values are, what's actually important to me. And I started to recognize that, you know, some of the things and ways I was living my life wasn't necessarily in line with my values. And I was more so doing, I guess, what was expected of me, sort of that status quo. Yeah. And I started talking to other women in my life about what I was learning and, you know, the new perspective I had on a lot of those things. And the response I was getting was incredible. I found women were you know, obviously could relate to a lot of those things. We have a lot of shared experiences. And, you know, the response I was getting was that's so inspiring. I feel so empowered talking to you. And I realized, you know, again, we have a lot of shared experiences and there was a way that, you know, I could help women from that perspective. And then the second piece to that was, you know, just figuring out what I wanted to do career-wise because, you know, I think something happens when you turn 42, it's kind of like you maybe want a little bit more freedom. And, you know, I wanted to take that new knowledge of what my values were and, you know, what I wanted to accomplish and translate that into a business. And I saw an opportunity to build a successful business by, um, you know, transitioning to financial planning for women. And insurance specifically was kind of like a gateway to get there. It was a way that I could start that transition and immediately, you know, start building a business while I took the time to get my CFP designation and, you know, uh, and work towards that eventually. And, you know, there's just a huge opportunity because, you know, in Canada, there's less than 15% of the advisors are women. Wow. Yet women are two and a half times more comfortable talking to other women about investment risk and finances. Uh, women are going to be controlling a lot more in assets over the next you know, few years. Uh, women outlive their male partners a lot of the time. And, you know, when that happens, over 80 percent of them switch advisors within the first year. And it's just really an underserved market. Um, And so it was kind of the perfect combination of, I think there's a huge opportunity to build a successful business with a way to empower women and and serve women. I love how you, you know, had the experience, the dragon's den, the quasi dragon's den experience that often leads to the favorite topic of due diligence. I love how you have that experience and sort of got, you know, grew up in the financial world, looking at it from the perspective of investing probably mostly in, uh, in companies, but maybe some individuals, you know, choosing personally to invest in that. And so you have the grounding, you have the, the bigger picture of what that looks like. But then when you saw this opportunity, you really focused, uh, changed and, and, and shifted to focus on 
the, the empowerment of, of women and how, how they could participate. Because I think you're exactly right. I think that women participate not only in, in, fin in the financial world. I think that how women show up and deal with legal problems, like the ones that I help them solve, they deal with accounting problems, mm -hmm. is, is also a, from a different perspective, from the female perspective than from how um, men look at that. And so I think you're I think it's interesting that you, you know, you had that broad training, that broad uh, background, and then you, from there, were able to really narrow it into something that uh, that you've you found to be really interesting. Just before we dive into that a little bit more, can you? And I don't know if you have a, you know, a a, a canned answer for this, but when we think about women and wealth, um, you know, as a, in as in totality, what? Why do women approach wealth differently than men? Or why is their perspective? Why is it that there is a difference in perspective? And why should we have, you know, advisors who are are targeting specifically women? What? Because I think it's intuitive that people know that that's the case, but it might be more less intuitive, maybe, uh, for why that's the case. Do you have any insight on that? Yeah, uh, that's a good question, I think, and I don't necessarily have a canned answer, like you said, but it, there's there's a lot of reasons. Um, yeah. I think there's a lot of different things that come into play. Our experiences in life yeah. are quite different, right? Our experiences from right from childhood through adulthood are quite different. Uh, we a lot of times have it drilled into our head that, you know, we're here to serve others first. Mm, yep. It's it's interesting. There's this sort of conflict right now where it's, you know, the message that we're getting is, you know, it's so important to take care of yourself first so that you can right. take care of others. Um, you know, that's really the ultimate goal is to take care of yourself first. But then when we talk about women and, you know, why we honor them so much, it's always because they put everybody else first. Mm, interesting. Um, and, yeah, I think women carry this belief that we have to put others first. And there's, you know, this sense of shame if we put ourselves first um, mm. and prioritize our needs and our desires as well. So, you know, that's that's one thing. Um, and, you know, we just have at different stages in life, different experiences than men. I, I like to give the example of, you know, after a family has a child, yeah. Oftentimes what happens is the, uh, you know, and, and everyone has different goals and values and all families, you know, are different as far as what they're looking to do. But in the example where, you know, maybe the woman has a previous career and she wants to go back to work. And so, you know, a year goes by, mat leave is done and it's like, okay, well, how much could you potentially earn if you go back to work? Yep. And let's subtract 100% of the childcare cost. Why women are responsible for 100% of the childcare, I don't know. Mm. But that's how we do the math. And whatever's left over, we, you know, say, is it quote unquote worth it for you to right. have to work? And we're forgetting the conversation around, well, what about all of those future years earning, you know, income earning potential? and wealth building potential that she's giving up based on that one calculation and one point of time and also what that will bring to her life her ability to build her career over time and you know be able to create financial security for herself as well within the family and so 
you know, that's just one example, but there's just all these, you know, status quo ways. I like your uh, previous guest, Jennifer Kluth, how she said, you know, she, she focuses on uh, workspace design and challenging, like who says the way that we've always right. done these things is the right way is to the do best it. Way. Right. Yeah. And so it's kind of similar. There's some parallels to that for sure. It's interesting in what you what you've said, you know, the the sort of the traditional math calculation that's done is the woman wants to go back to work. So we figure out how much childcare will cost and we say, OK, well, I would earn X and childcare call costs Y and therefore, you know, what's left over. Well, you know, and you you gave some really good um, examples of why that math is flawed, but it's not simply a math equation. So, so first of all, like, why is the father, why are we not, you know, doing some math on his salary as well to equalize that? But also, what about the personal fulfillment? What about the opportunity for personal growth separate and apart from the financial aspect? And I realize we're talking about finances, but I think that one of the reasons why some of the math is more complicated when you deal with women is because it's not just numbers that that need to be factored into those equations. And I think that when you make the, the point about maybe there's some shame and there's some deeper feelings, well, it, it's all related to the fact that it's not just a simple math equation that matters, but there's all these other aspects and women, you know, stereotypically and traditionally um, disproportionately bear the caregiving role and that's for children, mm -hmm. but it's for elderly parents as well, or, mm -hmm. you know, others in the family who maybe like a disabled sibling, for example, and those things tend, uh, you know, stereotypically and traditionally to fall on the shoulders of women. And so there's so many more variables besides just a strict, well, I could earn X and childcare costs Y and should I do a cost benefit analysis? Well, the cost benefit analysis is not just a math equation and there's so much more to it that I think maybe disproportionately affects women just because of the disproportionate burden that, uh, that can be taken. Yeah, that's a really good insight. So it's, you know, enriching your life in other ways. So it's right. connecting with other people and building relationships with exactly. people outside of your home. It's, you know, it's challenging yourself by learning new things, you know, building confidence by having other accomplishments outside of the home and uh, gaining different perspectives from different people that you wouldn't meet otherwise. There's The list goes on. You're, you're bang on. Um, I want to talk, I want to shift a little bit in terms of, uh, you know, providing some advice to women and, and meeting them where they are and, you know, dealing with their complex math equations uh, that go into their financial um, decisions. Are there some common pitfalls or mistakes um, that you see women investors making? And again, I realize that's a very general uh, question, but how can we avoid those? Like, are there some common traps that we should be aware of awareness being the first step in trying to, you know, shift a, an outcome? Mm -hmm. Yeah, there definitely are. Uh, and, you know, I hesitate to call it a mistake because that sort of perpetuates this feeling of you're doing something wrong and, yeah. you know, it's my fault and that sort of thing. Um, you know, we live within the system that has been created. And so, you know, but there are definitely things that I think we can talk more about and be aware of. And one of them is letting that shame get in the way of you taking action. And so, you know, I compare it to, uh, you, 
you know, not wanting to hire a cleaner uh, for your home before, you know, cleaning your house. So making sure your house is tidy before the house cleaner comes. Right. Or feeling like you can't hire a trainer and go to the gym and start because you maybe aren't in shape. It's sort of the same idea with finances. And so there's this shame and, you know, I don't know what I'm doing or I haven't maybe made the best decisions or I don't really understand where I'm actually at. And so there's this shame and fear that, you know, they can't engage with a financial planner and seek out that advice because they aren't where they want to be. And so Mm. I would say that's the first mistake is letting that get in the way and understanding that that's what I'm here for. And, you know, I like to create a safe space where you can be vulnerable and open and no judgment. Um, And and therefore... And therefore, be able to ask the questions that can actually help you get out of that yes. uh, that that cycle of of shame, right? Yeah, the questions that actually matter. And so, another one is, um, you know, it seems really simple, but it's very powerful, and that's not automating your finances. So hmm, I think there's tell me a about tremendous that. amount. Yeah, there's a tremendous amount of power and peace of mind really that comes with automating your finances. So that starts with creating a budget and it's a budget is not about, okay, where are you going to cut spending or, you know, stop, you know, doing the things that you want to do. That's not what it's about. It's about understanding exactly what's coming in, what's going out and how do I maximize my resources to accomplish my personal goals, whatever those are. And there are many ways to automate that. So you're not constantly living in this chaos, trying to make decisions month by month. It's all automated. And there's a, you know, an incredible amount of peace of mind that comes with that. And, you know, again, I think just delaying and avoiding, you know, avoiding taking stock of where you're at and delaying uh, making a plan uh, for fear of judgment or fear that you're not where you think you should be or where you know society tells you you should be. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting point, and I think we all, from time to time, fall prey to to that. I was reading an article recently. It, it's not exactly the same, but it made me. It, it reminded me of what you're saying, um, and it talked about you know procrastination, which is something that we all I feel like uh, get sucked into from time to time in different mm-hmm. aspects. And the 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 sort of the, the lesson was that you know if I have this big task that I need to do and I'm procrastinating, it's not because I can't do the task. Like maybe I can't do all of it. Maybe I need to learn some skills, but it's going to be difficult. I'm going to have to. And and it's the emotional fact that I'm going to be uncomfortable while I'm doing the task that I want to delay doing. And so it's it's not mm-hmm. so much that I can't do the task. I can sit down and do hard math all day long. If that was my task, I could figure out how to do that. But I'm not mm-hmm. going to like the fact that I have to learn how to do hard math and that, you know, the last time I did math was in grade 12 or whatever the case is. <laughs> and so it's the procrastination is rooted in in the emotions not in the you know in the substance and i feel like what you're what you're relaying is very similar to that that it's the feelings around the the decisions the feelings around the money the feelings around hiring the trainer is what is preventing mm-hmm. me from you know being able to take that uh, that first step and i think the lesson there is really that we're all very emotional people. And if we can get some regulation of that, then we can have some success in being able to accomplish whatever goal it is that we have set. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. So 
Once we've made the decision that, uh, you know, emotionally we're going we're gonna to get there and uh, we want to get ourselves on a path for investing, what do women need to know or what does any investor need to know? Well, I think, you know, seeking out the right advisor is a, a mm-hmm. key piece of that, right? And so how do you do that? Uh, I think, you know, there's a few, a few things to look for. Yeah. One is the qualifications of the advisor. So mm-hmm. are, you know, they do they have one specific license that's, you know, limiting the advice that they can give you or their competency? Do they have a CFP designation where they are competent in providing holistic financial planning? And just, you know, understanding the qualifications of the person that you're taking advice from. Another key thing to look for is how they handle conflicts of interest. And so conflicts of interest is something that, you know, often uh, comes up in the space that I'm in, in the financial space and getting advice. And that's because a lot of times, you know, when it comes to products like investment products or insurance products, the advisor is compensated by commission through the Mm -hmm. sale of products to you. And so there's inherent, you know, potential of conflict of interest there. And so, you know, what I would encourage people to do is ask the advisor how they handle the conflicts of interest. In advance of being in a situation where there's a conflict. Yes, yes, exactly. So finding out, you know, how they manage it and if they avoid the question or don't have a satisfactory response to you, you know, that's that may not be the right fit for you. What you want to do is work with somebody who, first of all, acknowledges that that conflict of interest is there. And by the way, that's not always the case. Um, If you're working with an advice only planner, that removes the conflict of interest because they're not selling you products. But again, if, if you are, then you want to make sure that the advisor is using a very clear methodology to challenge and stress test the recommendations that they're providing you mm-hmm. to ensure yeah. that it's in your best interest and that they're removing that conflict of interest as much as possible. And then, of course, you know, you just want to make, make sure you're working with somebody who shares the same values as you and philosophies. And, you know, I think that's why women like working with me and vice versa, because we do have that shared experience and something really powerful happens when you hear somebody else articulate exactly how you feel about something or how you've experienced something. It's like, okay, you, you understand where I'm coming from. Um, and so, you know, make sure there's shared values and philosophies. And I think that's really the main start when you're looking to get started is seeking out that advice and making sure that that person who is providing that advice is a good fit for you. I just want to pick up on, um, you touched on a little bit, this conflict of interest um, problem can go away in a situation where you're using your advisor to, to provide advice only. Tell, mm-hmm. me, tell me what that means. Why would a client choose to go to an advisor who is only providing advice? And I'm asking because, like, you know, we all have limited time in our day. And so if mm-hmm. at the end of the day, I am looking, you know, to get into some kind of products. Why would I choose instead of a one-stop shop, the person who can give me everything I need, what would be the benefit or what would be a situation where somebody would choose an advice only type of relationship? 
Yeah, so, you know, the I guess the obvious and first one is it does remove that conflict of interest. So, you know, somebody who potentially has had a bad experience or was provided a, you know, poor recommendation in the past might seek yep. that out because they're looking for somebody to provide advice that's in their best interest and isn't trying to sell them a product you know, based on the commission that they're going to earn versus what's in their best interest. And so sometimes people have had a prior bad experience and so they're now seeking out that advice only. Yeah. And essentially what it is, is looking at you as, a, as an individual and your unique circumstance and from a holistic perspective, right? So not just investments, but also how each area of your financial well-being works harmoniously together because there's you know tax planning there's estate planning investment planning of course but cash flow management insurance and risk management retirement planning and all of these different areas the recommendations you make impact other areas of somebody's financial well-being and so you want to make sure that you know you're working with somebody who's looking at that in a holistic manner and then advice only you know, another thing, too, is maybe somebody who wants to be a self-directed investor. Mm -hmm. And so, yep. you know, maybe they have some experience and, you know, or they're gaining experience and they want to self-direct invest, which is an option as well. So a lot of my clients who choose that advice only are in that boat. Um, yeah, there's there's many reasons, but, you know, that's the main reason is it removes that conflict of interest. I think it's really important for people to know that there are those different types of options because I think it's I think it's I think it's embedded in our culture that you know some financial planners and advisors kind of do everything for you and I think you know just like when people come to me they can ask me some questions about a very very specific or a very narrow topic, or it could be a conversation that's a little bit more global. We want to talk about how we're going to expand our business in the next five years. So, and and it it's not a one size fits all, right? Like what's good for one client might not be applicable. And so I think it's just helpful to know that that is is an option, um, because sometimes you just want maybe more of a like a a checkup about does this still make sense? Have the rules changed? I set this up a few years ago. I just want to check in. But I don't necessarily need something new. And maybe the advice when you've, you've completed that advice only engagement is, yeah, I do need to change this up. And then you can, you know, you can think about that. But I think it's, it's helpful to remember that you can break it down into into something a little bit more maybe incremental than taking on the full thing. Yeah, that's a that's a really good point. So maybe you've already invested for several years and you're happy with your investments and you're not looking for somebody to come in and change everything you're doing and transfer your funds to new investments. And maybe you already have insurance. You know, a lot of times my clients already have all of those things in place. Maybe after a divorce or going through some type of a separation, those might be, you know, those transition points in people's lives might be those opportunities where you don't need to change everything up, but maybe you need to understand things from a slightly different perspective um, to just have that peace of mind and be able to then make some decisions. Yeah, and even just getting a second opinion too, right? Um, of course. You know, maybe you already work with an advisor and you're just looking for a second opinion from somebody who maybe has a little bit of a different skill set. Yeah, for sure. 
I, I just want to uh, talk a little bit about picking an advisor. So there's, you know, there's lots of advisors. There's some terrible ones. There's some great ones. And as you alluded to, and I want to pick up on this a little bit more, it's very much about a relationship and it's very much about a fit with a particular, you know, with a particular client or with a group of people. And not everybody is everyone's cup of tea. And so what's, why is it important that you have a really good relationship? Like, why is it that not everybody, you know, not everybody is good for everybody? What are the elements that make that relationship really uh, important in the financial advising world? Yeah, that's incredibly important. And I think uh, there's a lot you know, there's a lot that goes into that. But, you know, the first thing that comes to my mind is, you know, it's important that you're working with somebody who is not giving you, uh, I guess, I, I guess I go back to the status quo. So they don't have these sort of preconceived, um, you know, guidelines that they're saying you should follow. Mm, and yep. so, you know, not everyone invests, as for an example, not everyone invests for the same reason, right? So right. not every single person is going to want to retire at 65, or, you know, maybe you um, want to continue working later in life. Uh, right. Maybe you want to create wealth for the next generation. Uh, maybe you want to start your own business. Um, maybe you want to give back to charitable causes that are important to you based on how mm -hmm. they've impacted your life. There are so many different reasons why people want to engage a financial planner. And I think the key is ensuring that, you know, they're uh, looking at you and helping you, sometimes helping you uh, figure out what your goals are. Right. And, you know, it's really a process of, not, you know, because sometimes it's hard to say, okay, well, in 20 or 30 or even 40 years, like, this is what I want. So, of again, it's not about, you know, saying, okay, well, we're going to retire at 65. You're going to, you know, you, you have to do all these things that are kind of what's the status quo. But figuring out what is actually important to that person, what is their unique experience in life, what are their specific challenges that they're facing, what are their fears, it's the human and emotional side, like you said, and understanding, you know, because there's the the quantitative factors, of course, the numbers matter, but the qualitative factors are just as, if not more important. So you don't want to make a recommendation for somebody, you know, just because the numbers work, if it's going to create them, you know, create stress in their life or it's something that they don't understand all of these other factors come into play. And so the relationship is incredibly important um, and that the trust is there and that your advisor is really uh, ensuring that, you know, they're doing what's in your best interest based on the human side as well. Mm -hmm. I couldn't agree more. I think, I think whenever you work with professionals, that relationship, it's, it's not just a transaction. You want to build that relationship and you want to sort of be in their court. And I also think that, there's an opportunity, not not with every client, of course, but, you know, like I work with with entrepreneurs who are working on growing and scaling their company. And I often get involved in, you know, like what's going on in their company. But then how does that affect them from a personal perspective, like their will? Do they do those things line up? Because that's a 
train wreck waiting to happen if they haven't thought about what's going to happen in my business versus what's going to happen mm-hmm. in my personal estate. And we often end up in conversations with other advisors, like the accountants, like the financial advisors, because all of those things, just like the relationship, just like what's unique about the human, their circumstance, and and sometimes that's their company or you know the company that they work for or that they've co-founded or that they own with partners, all of those different dynamics can really influence what actually happens. And I think the better uh, advice, the, the best advice maybe that is for that client incorporates all of the various professionals and being able to have those conversations and being able to extract that information um, just leads to a better outcome in terms of the advice that's that's provided. And hopefully the client at the end of the day feels like they've been well taken care of. Yeah, exactly. Lots of parallels there with what you do as well. I think too, another thing I, I notice is, and of course this is never a hundred percent in black and white, but yeah. generally speaking, I find that, you know, men typically want to be sold and women typically want to be educated. Right. And so, you know, that's the approach I take with my clients as well is from an education standpoint. And so it's not me just telling you what to do. It's me the value that I provide is the analysis. So you have, you know, uh, a set of goals that you want to accomplish. And I'm going in and saying, okay, in relation to these goals specifically, here are some potential issues or challenges that I see that could prevent you from accomplishing those goals. And here are some opportunities that I see that could help optimize your position in achieving those goals. And then with each of those options that I'm considering, I'm saying, okay, let's go in, do the analysis and figure out what the pros are, what the cons are, and then help educate the client on all of those details and, you know, empower them to make their own decisions. And it also helps them understand why they're doing what they're doing. It's not just, oh, this is what was recommended to me. So I'm just doing it. They really understand why and it's more of, you know, them feeling empowered as opposed Mm -hmm. to being told what to do. Of course. And that's so important. And it also helps them and, and you in, in your process of working with them really articulate the priorities because people could say like, Oh, look, I have these five goals. Well, which one is the priority? Because you might not have, and that's from a, from a resource allocation perspective, time, effort, money, you probably can't do all of them, or at least I've never been able to do all of them all Mm -hmm. at once. And so how do we, how do we figure out what the priorities are and how do we reevaluate those over time? Because those priorities will shift when your children are really little or your parents are aging, you know, you will have external um, factors that will have some influence on the, the priorities that you've set. So I think that's a really important message um, that it is, it's not static. This is something that we'll need to evaluate. We don't have to change everything all at once, but it is really important to stay in touch with what what are those goals, what are the priorities, and how are we going to you know pick away at them for for success? Yeah, and they change, right? Um, so you know, you might turn forty and decide you're you know you want something else in life, like I did. You might. You and might so then you're... turn fifty. Yeah, right. Um, Lots of things happen in life. You grow, you develop, you figure out who you are and your goals change and circumstances happen, challenges happen. uh, And, you know, we move, we have kids, we have all kinds of changes in our lives that 
you know, so the financial plan itself is actually always going to be an imperfect document. We're always making assumptions based on our best educated guess. And so, you know, it's a living document that needs to be reviewed, I would say at least once a year. Yeah. Um, if there are more changes happening within that year, then more often. But it's always adjusting, always changing. It's never written in stone. Your goals can change. Your your views and values and feelings on certain things you've done in the past can change. And so you're right. That ongoing review is very important. I want to ask you just briefly about the different designations or qualifications of, of advisors. And you made the comment earlier on that it's really important you know, to find a, an advisor who's competent. What do those, not everybody is familiar with sort of the designations and what, what should we look for from a, you know, bare minimum qualification competency level uh, when we're when we're potentially thinking of uh, engaging new advisors? So it, you know, it really depends on what you're looking for. Sure. Um, to, to be frank, so, you know, a different... So if you're looking for somebody to help you with holistic financial planning, it's going to be that CFP. So QFP or CFP, which is Qualified Associate Financial Planner or Certified Financial Planner. And so they've gone through a rigorous process um, and there are, you know, uh, guidelines and certain things that they have to adhere to to ensure that they're always putting the client's uh, interests first. And they've gone through the proper education and, you know, have proven competency through that process. And so I would say if you're looking for a financial planner um, or, you know, investment advice, then that CFP is is what you're looking for. Um, If you're looking just for insurance advice or ways to mitigate and manage risk, whether it's personally or in your business, you know, then an insurance advisor is sufficient. But I do think having that holistic financial planner and that CFP is beneficial and, you know, regardless, just because they understand how, even if you're only coming to them for one area of planning, they understand how it impacts everything else. So what does Mm -hmm. that mean for my tax liabilities? What does that mean for, you know, my estate planning? And so, you know, of course I'm biased because of a CFP, but... um, I do think that is one key thing to look for. But again, it does depend on what exactly you're looking for. And is it a fair question when you're meeting with a prospective financial planner to ask them to tell you about their designations and, and you know, what what that means? Because if, as you say, there, there can be a number of them. Is that a fair question to, you know, to have in, in a preliminary conversation? Absolutely. And I think how they respond to it is going to tell you a lot. Mm. Um, and so I expect all of my clients to ask me that question. And if they don't, I help them ask the question. Um, Very good. Yeah. And, and, you know, because not only do I want them to understand, you know, my competencies, but I also want them to understand what my competence competencies aren't. So the limits, right? Yeah. What the limitations I have. So I'm not a lawyer, of course. Right. So if I have a client um, who's creating her corporation and needs some business advice, I'm going to send them to you. If I have somebody who, you know, has some advanced tax planning issues, I'm going to send them to the accountant or maybe they already have one. So it's, it's both, right? It's understanding what I can do, but also what I can't do. And I want to make sure that they are very clear on that upfront. 
Um, and then also the services they provide. So, you know, um, I do offer that advice only planning, but I do also offer hybrid financial planning where right. I am doing insurance investments. Um, you know, we go back to the private capital space again. So not everyone can offer private capital investments. So my right. clients who have access uh, to those offerings through me. And so, you know, it's, it's hard to know what questions to ask and, you know, if you don't have that background. So, you know, asking as many questions as you can, and then hopefully they're helping you ask the questions that you don't know as well. Right. And I think that's one of the challenges for all of us is we don't know what we don't know. And so mm -hmm. uh, when when you work with really good professionals who help you understand what you don't know and and why you should know it, uh, then, mm -hmm. you know, they've done a real a real service for you. Tell me about how you came up with Amani Financial. What's what's the name and the brand? Tell me about that. Yeah, so when I was going through, and I still am, probably forever, my, you know, healing process and therapy and learning what my values actually are. Um, and they're my personal values, but they're also the values that I've incorporated into my business as well. So it's a Swahili word that I learned when I was in Africa. And Amani means uh, calm and reason, and it also means not only the absence of chaos, but the presence of peace and tranquility. Oh. And that's really the mission that I'm on is to guide women to financial independence and help them break the cycle of financial chaos and bring <laughs> peace of mind to their lives. And so, you know, there just couldn't be a better word for it there's some parallels when as you say when people come uh and and have conversations there's there's so much emotion that is packed into everybody's unique circumstance and you mm -hmm. talked about how at the beginning you you talked about how you really want to be the one to create a safe space yes. for women to come forward to be able to talk about their financial plans and their goals and their dreams and their aspirations and what a what a great way to embody that in the name of the business that you founded where can our people find out, our listeners find out more about Amani Financial? So the best place is amanifinancial.ca. So on my website, you can email me, you can link to all of my social media and really get in touch with me in every which way uh, through the website. So amanifinancial.ca. Perfect. Well, thank you kindly for taking time to chat with us. This is an important topic and I hope that uh, we've We've made it possible for people to seek out the safe space that is Amani Financial. Wonderful. Thank you so much for having me, Heather. I'm a big fan of your podcast. You have some incredible women uh, that you've chatted with. And so I'm really enjoying listening to all of those episodes. And it's an honor. Thank you for joining the podcast today. If you like the podcast, don't forget to subscribe or follow to get notified when we have an update.